Welcome to the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. How, how does your faith kind of play into it or does it play into it? What can be done about it? When I say the church, I'm talking about uh, evangelical white Christians and the black folk who attend their churches. Hello, welcome to the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you chose to share with us today, either through YouTube, where you are watching, or through Spotify, Amazon uh, Prime, or iTunes, where you are listening. Uh, We always invite and encourage uh, comments on the Thrive Podcast. You can reach me at fredjeffsmith at cox.net. Fred Jeff Smith at Cox.net. Let us know how we are doing. Uh, I am very happy today to have as my guest uh, my godchild, <laughs> Whitney Dawn Bro. I want you, I, I want to read something, and then we're going to move into the conversation from there. And and, and these are Whitney's word uh, words. Uh, day 18 was born out of my anger, sadness, hope, and determination. Anger. The real risks associated with breast cancer are largely unknown, especially for women under the age of 40. Sadness. One in eight women in the U.S. will be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. Hope. Through monthly self-breast exams, more women will speak to their doctor. Determination. Even one person's story can make a difference and save a life. And that's what you're doing today. You're making a difference, and hopefully we are saving lives. Breast cancer is is personal to me. I lost my mother uh, some 34 years ago to breast cancer, and it's personal to me again because it has stricken someone that I love and care about very deeply. Whitney, tell us your story. So I'm 32 years old, and I always start there because kind of like one of the statistics said, um, a lot of times when we think or hear about breast cancer, we associate it with women that are in menopause or over over the age of 40 mm-hmm. a lot of times. Um, and so it's been really important to me that I start with how old I am uh, because I think that it's important that women under 40, especially those under 40, uh, tune in and then that they continue to listen to this message because it's it's really important uh, but aside from being a 32 year old I'm a mom so yes. I have one son Jason he's 11 he'll be 12 next month uh, he's sixth grade and an all sport all elite athlete in his mind at least at the bare minimum uh, it I my, 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 my day job, when I'm not uh, kind of fighting breast cancer, I'm the COO of Global Marketing at Eli Lilly and Company, where yes. I've been now for almost 10 years. Um, and, and I start with those three things because uh, we call them the dimensions of difference. Like, what are the things that make you different from someone else mm-hmm. or that you kind of self-identify with? Age has always been important to me because I've always wanted to be the youngest or the fastest to do many things. I was uh, top 40 under 40 in Batner's business report when I was 22. I was 10 years ago and I I look in the magazine every year to make sure nobody's beat my age or you know the the level I want to be the youngest one ever. Um, But also the fact that I'm a mom Um, and, and I split custody with my son but being a mom is the most important job for me. Um, I, I lived in Indianapolis at a time at our company's headquarters, but getting back to Baton Rouge as frequently as possible, sometimes I would be here 10, 15 days a month, was important to me, being at his events and, and, and being there to kind of mold and help shape what I would like to think will be a future global citizen, um, not just a boy from Baton Rouge. I want him to truly be a global citizen. And then my work. Uh, you know, one of the things that I have been very open in sharing about my breast cancer journey is that I was a workaholic. Mm -hmm. Um, I would work to the point where I would host productive conference calls in my shower. Uh, I thought that that was like a pride moment Uh that I could manage that. But in reality, um, it, 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 it also helped me to probably miss the most important thing um, in, in my life certainly to date, which was the fact that for almost a year, I had cancer, active cancer growing and tumors growing in my left breast. And it went undetected, mm-hmm. it went unnoticed 
for my doctors believe it I mean it had been growing for at least 12 months um, so while I was working out every single day from July 1st of 2019 to January 23rd or 13th of uh, 2020 that was so LSU could win the national championship that was like my sacrifice <laughs> I was doing all of that I was traveling to countries around the world and living life as I like to call it in the fast lane until COVID happened mm -hmm. and I couldn't go anywhere and mm -hmm. I was forced to be still just long enough that um, randomly, not by any medical exam or any actual preventive or self-examination efforts of my own, um, I discovered the three tumors randomly. Um, and seven days later, I was diagnosed with late stage three breast cancer. Um, so, so when people ask, you know, who are you or tell us a little bit about yourself, I really do. I start with age. I talk about how important it is and how I'm defined as being a mom, but also the fact that work has always been important to me and that I'm a marketer by training. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this experience over the last, you know, six plus months, uh, has fundamentally changed the way that I even see the world. You have been incredibly transparent through this whole process. I know that you have shared with people, uh, not, not just close, intimate people, you've shared with anyone and everyone what it is that you're going through. I'm, I'm uh, awestruck at how transparent uh, you have been when it's been my experience that people who are dealing with this issue uh, tend to close ranks and, and want to be very private. Discuss how, how you came to that decision and how it has affected uh, the process as you've gone through your therapy. It is my coping mechanism. Um, I am a I am a workaholic. Mm -hmm. That that is that is true to who I am as a person. Um, and I also have lived life out loud, if you will, uh, ever since like the beginning of social media. Like I was on it, and I was not afraid to just kind of be who I who I was and who I am. And so when this happened, as you kind of read, I was angry. Mm -hmm. I was angry at myself. I was angry at um, the healthcare industry that I work in today because I felt like it was there was no excuse for me to not have known that breast cancer could even be a possibility to affect me. Um, when I think about television or movies or just you know popular entertainment, and I think about it, times when women with breast cancer have been portrayed. Mm -hmm. I have never seen an African-American or black woman have breast cancer on television or in a movie. Mm -hmm. It's not something that you see. And even after I kind of went public and said what I was going through, um, I was shocked by the number of women that would reach out, African-American women older than myself, who would mm -hmm. reach out and say, I've been there too. Yeah, And it angered me that I should not have had an excuse not to know. And it made me realize that for my family, for the women that I love, my friends, we didn't know that it was something for us to even be paying attention to. I genuinely thought that breast cancer was a white woman's disease. Like just totally transparent. I mean, I put it out there for everybody to read. Right. That's what I thought. and. My, I mean, my doctor and I never talked about breast cancer. I mean, I go to my OBGYN once a year. I did all the things that I thought I was supposed to do. I work out. I eat relatively healthy, except for whenever I'm in South Louisiana and you just can't <laughs> avoid it. So I, I didn't um, I didn't understand that. And so to me, kind of my way of, you know, acting out to a certain degree mm -hmm. and kind of telling cancer, you know, you don't control me and you're not going to control my life was to put it on front street mm -hmm. and to kind of say, let me be as transparent with both the highs and the lows of this experience in hopes that someone sees it. And, and, and I guess I was joking with my mom the other day and I said, um, it's almost as though I'm trying to get my own attention from a year ago. Mm -hmm. Like if, if, if what I do can put enough information out there and enough um, you know, vulnerability around it and transparency, maybe someone just like me will see it and say, man, I, I resonate, you know, I connect with her, I can relate to her and it happened to her. Maybe I need to perform that self-exam. 
you haven't only been transparent, uh, but you've been very aggressive in the choices that you have made with regard to your treatment. Do you want to discuss that? Yeah. So we did <clears throat> six rounds of chemotherapy, mm -hmm. and um, chemotherapy is real. I I have never myself, you know, when you think about like the degrees of separation from you and other people, like we've had people in my extended family um, that have been had, you know, had illnesses. Cancer really hasn't been one. Now, when you go like to our friend group that surrounds our family, we have had, but I've never seen it up close and personal. So mm -hmm. it, um, I didn't know what to expect. You know, I tried to lean on some survivors and thrivers as they like to say, to kind of help paint the picture. But chemotherapy is exactly what they tell you it is. It is a drug that is designed to um, kill the cancer, but it also kills every other cell in your body too. Mm -hmm. And so that was a uh, very difficult experience for me, for someone who prides themselves on working out and who prides themselves on eating the right things and doing the right things that I was by choice putting a dangerous and lethal drug in my body in an effort to save my life. I mean, right. it was almost the juxtaposition of that was very difficult for me to kind of mentally contend with. And then the downtime that would come after it, because I was trying to work through this whole experience. Like mm -hmm. I wanted to, you know, show cancer who's boss. Mm -hmm. uh, but I had to learn through that experience too, how to listen to my body more. Like when I'm tired, I need to take a rest. Right. And and chemo taught me that. Mm -hmm. um, and then about uh, a month ago, a month and a half ago, I did, you know, kind of by medical recommendation, but also by choice, um, I had a double mastectomy. Mm -hmm. So both breasts were removed. Um, and I'm in the process of preparing for six weeks of radiation that will start in mid-November every day, Monday through Friday for six weeks in an effort to prevent future cancer from growing um, on, the, on my left breast and in my left lymph nodes. Uh, so it, we have been really aggressive and they say a lot of times that is because of your age mm -hmm. and also because they wanna you know, prevent or try to stave off any type of future reoccurrence of your cancer. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I felt like I needed to be open throughout all of those different medical experiences because like I said, I, I mean, other than talking to those who had been through it, there was very, not very much that I knew about what to expect from start to finish of, of treatment and of therapy. But for the women who have been through it, uh, I think that they know what, what that experience was like. And mm -hmm. so it was important for me to share that in a transparent way with my friends and family. I know that you were raised in this church, uh, baptized in this church. At some point, you made the decision uh, to become Catholic. Uh, uh, explain, you thought I was gonna go that way. I'm not gonna go that way. <laughs> I, 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 I'm just going to ask, explain how your faith has played a role in helping you to cope with what it is that you're doing and dealing with. And my grandmother is a minister and a preacher yes, as well, is. you know. Um, the truth is, I firmly believe, and this is the first time I guess, I did this with Gigi yesterday, though. I was almost preaching to her on the phone because she <laughs> called. I was like, okay, you want to listen? Fine. Um, I believe that I have been blessed by God with a series of life experiences, both professionally and personally, that were were intentional on his part. I didn't understand it. I mean, my friends call me a polymath because I kind of can pick up a whole bunch of different things and get good at it relatively quickly. Mm -hmm. But I didn't understand kind of the, my, I mean, my career path even was very varied. I mean, the decision to become Catholic was, you know, for some, you know, a little bit spontaneous on my part. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, in this moment, what I have learned to appreciate and value about God's choices and, and, and what he expected and wanted from me was that I needed to have experiences up to this point so that I could be comfortable enough in this moment with what I am battling and facing to, ex to, to, to express and to testify this testimony. Mm -hmm. I didn't get um, that. Siri mentions recording everything, but um, 
it, it, my, my, my faith has always been important to me. I've not been as outward about it, mm-hmm. I think, growing up. I think growing up in a Baptist church, you see it so outward that I think I was very scared of it for a long time. Um, but in, and, and I mean, I'm, I consider myself Christian and Catholic. So I, I, I still will listen to Shiloh on Sunday mornings at eight o'clock uh, because I do love my Godfather and I want to hear the message that, he, that, he, that he's giving. Um, but I also find a peace in mass that is important to me as Mm -hmm. well. And I I feel like, again, this journey that I've been on, I didn't understand why it was being scripted the way that it was. Mm -hmm. And now I understand it. Um, I have been able to communicate and share about day 18 and about my, my, my breast cancer journey on many different platforms because I have relationships with people from 10, 12 years ago in media here locally mm-hmm. that the answer was yes the moment I asked or they reached out and said, hey, I'd love to do a story on this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and now I understand that just because I left and went to Eli Lilly and company, I maintained those relationships very genuinely, mm-hmm. but I also became a much stronger marketer at Lilly, mm-hmm. allowed me to really help put day 18 together and through God's, you know, through what he expected out of me, as, as I now understand it, is to test to, to be a testimony to what he has done in my life and to ensure that others are hearing it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it it's one of the most incredible things now. And I didn't know that I would understand it at 32, mm-hmm. but it's very clear to me what I was put on this earth to do. I have known you to be a world traveler. You, you, you don't just go within the continental United States. You like traveling all around the world. Uh, uh, this has, uh, well, of course, the COVID pandemic has, has, has had an impact on that. But this has had an impact on that as well. It has altered your lifestyle, not not just the obvious things with regard to the therapy, but with regard to the things that you like to do to recreate, to enjoy your life. Uh, how has that adjustment been for you? It's been hard. That's probably been the hardest part of it. And it's, it's, I, I have a bad habit sometimes of making light of things that shouldn't be funny, but at this point, to me, they are. Uh, some of my coworkers would say, Whitney, you picked the perfect time to get cancer because we can't go anywhere anyway. <laughs> and I'm like, you guys, you're kind of right, because this would be a lot harder, I think, if I saw other people going out and doing things. But right. we're all kind of a bit restricted. But this has been exceptionally hard for me because my friends live all around the world. Mm-hmm. I have a friend right now who's stuck in Dubai with her family. Um, she was supposed to come back a long time ago, but she's kind of there until December now. I have friends that live across the U.S. and in other places. So even sometimes when I would travel, I was traveling to be with my friends. And COVID and, and having cancer and being in a sensitive patient population has made um, even just human interactions somewhat difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm used to being on an airplane every other week. I am dying for Elish, for like Delta to like just let me go sit on the plane. It could you don't <laughs> even fly. Just let me sit in the seat uh, because it. But it, but it, it it became very important to me to be on the go and to be seeing the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting because now, and I even think about Stuart Scott and kind of his quote from his ESPY speech. You know, you know, you beat cancer by how you live. And I think before this experience, I thought that meant how many passport stamps was I collecting? I thought Mm -hmm. that meant how many promotions could I get at Mm -hmm. work? Now I understand how I live and how I'm beating cancer to be when I step outside at night and I look up at the stars and I see them so bright. Mm Or when I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the levee this morning and I, I notice how green the grass actually is Mm -hmm. or you know i love ice cream and how good cold stone actually tastes with marshmallows it's awesome (laughs) that is i think what he meant by that Mm -hmm. and you know i'm now that does not mean that i am not ready to get back on a plane because i am and as soon as we have good clearance i plan to get back to what some sort of normal was from before Mm -hmm. but i think that um what I've walked away with is just such a, a greater level of appreciation for the present moments that I have, the, the, the small exchanges, you know, with my soon to be tween um, th- th- that he gives me still. 
and, and I think I've learned to celebrate it. So I may not be going anywhere mm-hmm. physically, but I, but I feel like I have, um, I've, I've grown to have a greater level of appreciation for what's just even around me. You've shared with everyone, including your son, mm-hmm. uh, what you're going through. And I've seen the pictures. He's, he's your partner. He's your companion along this journey. Has this matured him as he has watched you go through this process? So I do believe that Jason is called by God to ministry. He is, for his age, he is well-versed in scripture Mm -hmm. and his understanding of it has always shocked me. Um, I mean, he could almost minister to me in moments. And when I told him, when his dad, his stepmom and I sat down and talked to him about my diagnosis, his response was not tears. It wasn't anger. His response was, well, I'm just going to trust that God and the doctors are going to do what it takes to save my mom. And I think that that helped me. And I think he's always been the type of kid that he's aware of how what he says or does may affect other people. Um, But I do know that it has it has affected him at times, Mm -hmm. Um, times where, for example, when school got back into session this fall, I was still in chemotherapy and, you know, he couldn't go back to school full time. He Mm -hmm. was one of, you know, maybe four kids out of his sixth grade class that would be virtual for the first nine weeks. And, and I did see him begin to struggle with it towards the end of that experience. Um, and I think it's because he was trying to be the big boy and trying to stand up. And like you said, he, he is my, my, my best friend, my companion. Yeah. Um, and I do think that it has even matured him even more than, than I thought he was mature prior to this experience for him. Um, but I also think that he's still a teenage, you know, preteen. And, and I think I'm excited to see him get back to some of the things that I know he loves, mm-hmm. uh, because I think that it's important. And I mean, he, you know, he, he struggled at times, um, and there are things that we'll have to continue to work through together. But I mean, if there is a bright light in this, it's been watching him just kind of be be sometimes my strong standing force whenever sometimes I was weak. He's he's been there, right there through That's everything. Excellent. That's excellent. Let me ask you a couple of of questions around healthcare and politics. Yeah. I, I can't get away from politics, especially at this season <laughs> of the year. Later on today, uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett is going to be sworn in. Uh, it is believed that right after the election, uh, a case is going to be presented to the Supreme Court that is going to have a direct impact on the Affordable Care Act. Now, you work in the healthcare industry, but for you at this particular time, this is a much more personal issue. What fears do you have with regard to politics and insurance and things like that going forward? And it's interesting because I just had a situation that I'm trying to navigate around my life insurance policy. Um, and some issues now that I have breast cancer that seem to be popping up. So I, I mean, I'm, I'm living it in the moment. Um, it, it, it is a game changer when you become a patient with pre-existing conditions. Mm-hmm. You begin to even evaluate, um, you know, during open enrollment right now with my company. And I've got, I mean, amazing health insurance that's company provided. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I recognize that now I am one of those patients within my insurance pool that is pulling a lot of the resources that may sometimes drive healthcare costs up. Mm-hmm. My concerns, and, and this is coming from someone that I would describe myself as a conservative, but certainly fiscally, not uh, not on social issues. Uh, but 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 I, I do have concerns about what happens if you change elements of the Affordable Care Act mm-hmm. and what replaces it? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I would prefer to not see a court making this type of decision. I would mm-hmm. prefer to see, you know, legislation that either addresses some of the areas of the Affordable Care Act where there are still gaps. Um, but but it certainly it, it, it I am attuned to the issues much more than I think I was before. Certainly before I, I looked at it much more from a work perspective and mm-hmm. kind of the impact on our business. Um, but now it, it is absolutely personal that uh, th- that that 
and, and it's even more personal for me because now I've seen the other women in my treatment center. Mm -hmm. I, I have seen the differences in maybe some of the decision making that may occur at times because I've got resources to have conversations and understanding about my disease that allows me to make different decisions. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, it plagues me to know that not everybody has that. And, you know, m my hope is that um, when you have, sw we call them the tides of consent in politics, because that's what I studied in undergrad, that whenever you swing the pendulum too much in one direction, there is a time where it will swing back. Swings back. And, 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 I, and I hope that that swing back is a bit more in a, in a middle of the ground type of road. Um, I wasn't happy to see Louisiana privatized Medicaid under Bobby Jindal many, mm -hmm. many years ago. I actually ended up working on that, um, that, that rollout um, a couple of, almost 10 years ago, I guess. But I, I think that there is, there are, there are pros and there are cons to the Affordable Care Act. Mm -hmm. I think that it's important that we have structured conversation about it. I, I am nervous to see what the Supreme Court will do because a judge is not going, this, this Supreme Court will not legislate from the bench. They will either strike something down or they will uphold a previous lower court's ruling. Mm -hmm. the, the politics of it, uh, with, it, it, it's not that healthcare is a mutually exclusive thing. The politics of it stems from Insurance is a, is collaterally damaged by the resentment that seems to be pervasive in uh, in Washington D.C. Uh, toward Barack Obama and his presidency, uh, and it seems like anything that Barack Obama did, uh, this current president is determined to undo. Uh, that being said, uh, do you think it's fair? that insurance become collateralized into a situation that's really, it seems from the outside looking in, a very personal issue for this particular president. I think that this particular president, whether something, and, and this is where I hate to see where politics has gotten, is that it is so divisive that people and candidates can't even seem to recognize the pros and the cons of their opponent. And, mm -hmm. and that for me is something that I see in leadership that I demand, whether it's who I work for or myself as a leader, I want to be a leader that hears all sides, recognizes that sometimes someone else has a better idea than I have, mm -hmm. and we lean into that. Mm -hmm. And what I hate to see in today's political environment is an unwillingness to recognize that everyone may other people may have ideas that are better than your own mm -hmm. and what i see in this particular president and and i will say as a member of the republicans voting against donald trump um he there are educated conservatives and republicans out there that acknowledge and understand that this particular president does not stand for the ideals of the grand old party uh, he is not a representative i think of what the future of the Republican Party wants to see. And our intent right now, I say our because I'm a part of that group, is to vote him out mm -hmm. um, because he is not a leader. He is not someone that um, that I think is capable of representing the United States, whether that is, you know, Democrats or Republicans. He doesn't represent, I don't think he represents anyone well. Mm -hmm. and, and particularly when it comes to Barack Obama, it is almost as though, you know, he is a reality show producer and he has decided that that's his arch nemesis who's not even in the, I mean, other than supporting Joe Biden, Barack Obama has relatively been, you know, back. Yes. He hasn't been on the front lines. And I look to can to former presidents like George W. Bush and even his dad to a certain degree. There was a decorum around the Oval Office that, mm -hmm. unfortunately, because of, um, you know, the, the, essentially the GOP losing some of its base because of their ill content with having a black president for mm -hmm. eight years, it, it has eroded the party. And those that know those details mm -hmm. recognize that if Republicans don't get Joe Biden elected, this entire country is in trouble uh, for the next four years. You know, you and I differ on politics. We've had these discussions before. Uh, I frankly don't see how anybody can be anybody who's African-American can be a Republican when the Republican Party is working uh, overtime.
to try to suppress African-American votes across this country and in this state. Uh, we have gerrymandered uh, the, the state districts in such a way that uh, whites continue to control the state legislature. And the state legislature just this past week uh, has tried to strip our governor uh, of his, his state constitutional authority uh, to uh, uh, regulate and authorize what goes on during this pandemic. Uh, so, so, so I know that we differ when it comes to, to, to the politics of it, but as it affects uh, you and and people that you have come to know through this whole process, how do you differentiate between your personal feelings and your philosophical views, your political views, and so forth and so on? How, how, how do you draw those lines of distinction? Here's, what's, here's what I enjoy about being a millennial leader. There are no lines, honestly. Th th there are no lines because what I have come to appreciate is if someone has a better idea than the philosophical ideals that I've held for years and years and years, or something has happened to me, like obviously having breast cancer, my ideals can change, my mm -hmm. philosophies can change. And, and I think that this will rear its ugly head in the coming uh, you know, kind of elections. Other millennials and generation X's like me feel and think the same way. Mm -hmm. we, we don't really want to be owned by any political party. Mm -hmm. We want to have the freedom and flexibility to say, you know what, this Republican candidate, I believe, is a better leader than this Democratic candidate. Mm -hmm. Because what I see is when people get it, well, prior to the last couple of years where we've been so divisive, but when people get into office and they're actually in process of governing, they forget to be common sense leaders and to make decisions based on the information that they have available. I mean, it is like the plague to admit that you were wrong. Mm -hmm. I was wrong that breast cancer could affect me and that it was possible. I was wrong. My mom's gonna love that, that I admitted <laughs> that I was wrong about something. But, 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 and, and so for me, I've never been tied, or I am now, I am not tied to something to the point where it's like, you know, it's either this or that. Mm -hmm. I'm much more in the sense of, let me hear the pros and cons about both. I'm probably going to take the pros and, and, and use the cons in order to try to make an even better plan mm -hmm. than what I thought to begin with. So there are some fundamentals that I do believe in. For example, I, I do believe that we are taxed in this country at an at an astronomically high rate. I would love to see a bill where maybe we just don't tax people till they're 40. You know, maybe we could slide that in there. So I gotta pay student loans back. You know, I got things to do. But, um, you know, I, I do think taxes are, are an issue in this country. Mm -hmm. I, you know, maybe differ in the sense that I do believe that everyone has a right to health care. Now, how do we produce that in the United States? I think that there's a lot of different methods and 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 and, um, and, and ideas that people could come up with to meet that need in our communities. Do I think it has to all be government regulated? Maybe not. Mm -hmm. And and I would say more so. I'm more so in the camp of. And, you know, I think you mentioned um, John Bell Edwards and the governor's, um, you know, the House kind of over or attempting to overturn his mandates. What I know is many conservative Republican people, if you will, the the it's the mandates are the problem when there's a mandate by our government that produces a problem and a contentious issue for many people. They would rather have the choice. And I think that whether you're the president or you're a governor, you're in a very difficult spot right now because at first everyone, you know, well, it took a while for them to understand the need for some of these mandates. And, you know, I don't necessarily believe that the House needs to be overthrowing the, the, the governor. I think that the two parties, the two groups need to work together. And mm -hmm. I know that they don't want to, mm -hmm. but that would be my expectation as a voter. Whenever I go into the voting booth, I am consciously thinking about who am I pressing the button for that is going to work with people versus being so tied to their own ideas that they may miss the opportunity to do something revolutionary, innovative for the benefit of the people? You're an LSU alum. I am. Uh, and you absolutely love the LSU Tigers football team. I do. Uh, you, you love LSU athletics, but particularly the football team. I am of the opinion, and I refuse to watch any college football uh, this year. Uh, 
I'm of the opinion that college football should not be played this year because of the pandemic uh, and that college football is only being played uh, because capitalism prevailed and uh, there is an inherent greed that exists within college athletics uh, that demanded that uh, football be played. Uh, and for me, it's exploitation of the talents <clears throat> of primarily African-American young people. And you can make the argument, people have said, well, the, the people want to play, the kids want to play. But here's the thing, they're kids. Take them out of their uniforms. They're 18, 19, 20-year-old children. And children should not be making these kinds of decisions, in my opinion, that can affect the rest of their lives. We have no way of knowing what this virus can do to these athletes long term. And I don't see anybody in responsible positions who are putting the needs and the concerns ahead of their desire to make money. That's my perspective. Share with me what you think about that. So having researched and, and known about COVID-19 prior to its dominance, dominant arrival in the United States, because this did start in China and I work in a global business. Mm -hmm. I think that there were a lot of assumptions about COVID-19 and its potential impact on the population at large. I think early on we knew and kind of understood, hey, you know, this is probably going to affect the elderly first. And then you started seeing the nursing home issues, et cetera. Um, I think by and large, though, there's an understanding that for younger people, there is a less likelihood. And I say less because I'm very transparent in the fact that, yes, there are some young people who have died from COVID-19. That is real. I think that what we have seen, though, when it, as it relates to college athletics, is administrators trying to balance needs and concerns that they've heard from a varied group of people. Like you mentioned, the players themselves, their parents that have stepped up and said, you know, we want to sign waivers, et cetera, et cetera. I think in life there is an element of risk in everything that we do. Um, I didn't think that getting breast cancer was one of those potential risks that I was going to face. And it happened. And, and, and I don't doubt that there may come a time in this collegiate football season where someone, um, Jalen Waddle, just this past week, I mean, had a broken ankle on a kickoff return that no one could have anticipated. Season ending, he's out. Just as we have injuries that occur on the playing field, I fully expect that there may be something that materializes around COVID-19 and, and a college football player. I don't think it's something that we should put so far out of our minds, uh, out of the realm of possibility that you don't consider it. What I do think I have seen, though, is, like I said, administrators evaluating the risks, um, both as it relates to the finances that not only impact athletic departments from a football perspective, but also the other sports that you know benefit and are only in existence because you have a football program that generates those funds. And, and I think that ultimately, just like any leader has to do, you have to make a decision based on the information that you have available. And ultimately, if those decisions are wrong, my expectation is that those leaders will have to be held accountable. Yeah, but accountability uh, might carry with it severe consequences for the for those who are being exploited. Uh, when when we find out five years from now that someone's career uh, was ended because he played during this pandemic and he's seeking redress in the court system, then the very same people who made that decision uh, will, will turn back and say, well, you, you had the option. You, you didn't have to play. And we're going to see a glut of lawsuits coming through the court system asking for uh, compensation, uh, just as we see about cigarettes. I mean, I mean, 50 years ago, they were saying, well, they put it right on the pack that, <laughs> that, that smoking uh, cigarettes causes cancer. But it has not changed the fact that we are still dealing with the fallout from people smoking. 
Mark my words, this is going to happen uh, again. And I just refuse to be a part. As much as I love football. I know you love I, football. I absolutely love football. My Cowboys ain't doing so no, well. But, but, <laughs> but, but, but I absolutely love football. But I feel like I am contributing to the problem by watching football. Charles tried to get me to watch some of the game. I, I, I refuse to watch. I am not going to be a party to that. And I understand that that the economy has to go on, but I don't think that the economy should be a priority over the lives of people, primarily black and brown people. I just see this as an extension of, of the constant exploitation that takes place with black and brown people, and it's troubling to me. That's my spiel. That's <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, I think ultimately, only time will tell. Mm -hmm. Only time will tell. And I think that the question that the courts will have to address ultimately will be, did you know or should you have known that there was risk and potential of long-term impact associated with COVID-19 um, that could you know, impact student athletes in, in an adverse way? I think the problem with that is we won't know for some time. I mean, again, I work in healthcare. There are a, a, I mean, right now I have been on drugs and I mean, I work in the drug industry, so I know the side effect profile is really long sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, I am having EKGs three times or every three months because one of the drugs that I'm on could and has shown a potential to impact your heart. Mm -hmm but we don't know if that's going to impact me so we have to monitor it and you know i think much similarly we'll have to follow covid-19 pretty closely the difference is you're dealing with cancer yeah. and you're dealing with issues that directly impact your life these kids are dealing with uh potential damage to their livelihood. Not all of these kids are gonna sure. play professional sure. ball, but some of them might. And their careers could be curtailed because they are participating in uh, athletics at this time of year. Let me turn the page, because <laughs> we can stay there. Uh, uh, you live here now. Yes. You're back home now. Apparently people didn't know that though. Well, yeah. <laughs> I've been home for like, Two years. Yes. <laughs> but I know that you have lived in other places in the country. And, and as we've mentioned, you like living, you, you like traveling. What do you see in Baton Rouge as someone who grew up here, left here, and came back? What's your assessment of Baton Rouge as a community? I think we still have a ways to go. We do. And, and I say that because I have lived in other places, because I have traveled the world, and I mean, I'm talking about spending extended periods of time in foreign countries, mm -hmm. et cetera. I still see in Baton Rouge an attitude where sometimes it feels like people think that the only thing that exists in the world is Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And that's just not reality. It's one of the reasons why I was very adamant about getting my son a passport, you know, very early on in his life, because mm -hmm. I, I want him to see a world beyond what exists here. What exists here is comfort. What exists here is familiar to many of us. I mean, there's a great stat that like 78% of babies born in the state of Louisiana never live anywhere else, ever, ever. And I think that what that creates- I did not know that. 78, and when I was on the board for March of Dimes, it was one of our statistics that we would use when lobbying the legislature to try to get um, different bills through for early you know, prenatal care for women. Because, mm -hmm. hey, if you got people that are born here and they stay here, that means they're, they're on our state in you know, uh, healthcare cost, et cetera. Um, and so it's important, but it, it's also, I think, important for Baton Rouge to become more of a city that welcomes people in from the outside Mm -hmm. uh, that we have more companies here that, um, that, that, that actually have headquarters here and that are not necessarily privately owned, family-run businesses. I mean, there was a time when I, you know, had to make some difficult decisions and, and when I joined where, the company where I work now where I wasn't okay with me being in my career and demonstrating, you know, excellence in my work, and then someone's kid graduates from LSU and becomes my boss. Mm -hmm. I, I personally am not going to fare well in that type of situation. And, and so I think that as much as Baton Rouge can 
be much more welcoming to those who are not from here. Bring, and I think that we, I think that we do quite frequently. You hear people say, you know, I'm, I'm not a Baton Rouge native, but I'm a Baton Rouge son or daughter anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think we need more of that. I think we need more outside ideas and more outside experiences and then people coming back and helping us as a city and as a community uh, in, in repairing some of the things that have happened in our past, but also helping to set the trajectory for the city's future. Um, but but my, my personal opinion is that we still have a, a, a pretty far ways to go. I will even go so far as to say that if my son did not live in the city of Baton Rouge, I don't think I would be here. I'd visit. I understand. <laughs> uh... And, and because I know you, I, I, I knew the answer yeah. to that question, but I, I wanted to probe and see if some shift had taken place. Doesn't sound like much of a shift has, no. has taken place. No, no, no. I mean, if anything, it's interesting as an adult woman to experience Baton Rouge now, mm-hmm. after having been an adult woman living in another in a, in a major city in the U.S., in, in that... Um, you know, because I don't work here per se, like I, I'm based here, but I, I would work in and out of Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not as much as I thought to do for a single 30 something, you know, woman, you know, I mean, I only have my kid every other week and I love my schedule. So my free time, I found myself leaving the city during my free time to go do things elsewhere prior to, to the pandemic. And I think that that needs, there, there has to be an, 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 an attitude and a willingness to address that. Otherwise, I think that we're going to continue to see the age disparity and when people choose to live in the city. I mean, from what I've seen in the statistics, we have a very, you know, population kind of on the curve. You've got a big population in your young under 18 group. Right. You've got a gap that occurs following that college exodus of students from our universities and then you've got a big group at the tail end of life your baby boomers and those that have now retired that sometimes come back home to baton rouge and Mm -hmm. i think that 25 to 45 year old age group is demanding a lot out of a city in um in and where they work Uh, and i think baton rouge needs to rise to the occasion if we want to be that attractor of that age group and that demographic back into the city what is it that you hope to accomplish through day 18 beyond sharing the information, sharing your story five years from now, 10 years from now, what is it that you see day 18 being a part of? My goal is it is for day 18 to become a household name while me still doing my day job being the goal. (laughs) But, but, but honestly, I, as a marketer and that's why I said I feel like my journey has been so intentional that in this moment um, I was able to channel my anger my frustration my sadness into what day 18 has become Mm -hmm. Um, I started working on it back in April long before I launched it in October and didn't I didn't even know if I was going to launch it in October I had everything ready but I just I didn't know if it was time or if I would have the energy for it uh, but I posted a infographic on how to perform a self-breast exam on my Facebook page right before I launched the campaign. And four hours later, a young woman who lives here locally, 30 years old, messages me on Facebook and says, I don't know you, but I saw your post and I performed a self-breast exam and I found a tender lump in my breast. And I'm messaging her while I'm at Woman's Hospital seeing my plastic surgeon. She's across the hall having her first mammogram and her first ultrasound, which suggested, had a high likelihood, that what they found was cancer. Mm -hmm. That was, I felt like, God telling me, you can't sit on the back burner anymore. I put you here and in this moment for you to to send this message and, and make it a household name. I mean, I wear my little polo and, you know, I've even had people stop me and say, I've heard about it. What is that again? Mm-hmm. And my goal would be that performing self breast exams every month is not a myth. It's not a misunderstood thing. Just as much as we know that cigarettes can cause cancer, I want women to know, hey, if you perform a self-breast exam, you will help yourself. You will become your best advocate as a patient in having that conversation with your doctors. What astounded me, because I'm a researcher, I'm a fact finder. Mm -hmm. When I started to learn about breast cancer and I heard that one in eight number, that's a huge number to me. 
I have, you know, I think I've calculated, I have 6,000 connections on LinkedIn. That means 300 women that I'm currently connected with will be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. That's mind blowing to me. But what took me to a whole nother level was when I read a research paper that evaluated the perceptions of breast cancer in the African American community. When it said that although white women will be diagnosed with breast cancer at a higher rate, black women die at a higher rate. And why is that? Because we don't perform self-breast exams. It's not a part of our conversation. My mom and I, ne not to say anything's wrong with my mom, because I love my mama, but we never talked about self-breast exams. Mm -hmm. I pledged a white sorority at LSU, so I was surrounded by white girls in undergrad, and I've, uh, you know, I, I've, li I've lived my life on the color line, I like to say. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you, they talk about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is, a, it is a frequent conversation that occurs between their moms, their grandmothers, and white women. This particular research paper even um, uncovered that physicians are more likely to have a conversation about breast cancer with their white patients than their black patients. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that any doctor does anything right or wrong, but it's to say we all, I believe, many of us have had misperceptions and, um, and misunderstandings associated with breast cancer. So for me, day 18 is all about getting women under 40 to understand that their risk is real mm -hmm. and that they can be their best champion for their health by performing those self-breast exams. And it's, it's not even like you think a second thought about it. It's the 18th day of the month. I'm in the shower and I do it. So that way you discover your abnormalities if they ever form. But I'm also talking to African-American women because I want them to understand that this is not a white woman's disease. The research paper found the same thing. It was almost like it was telling me what, what I had thought myself. And it, it, it helped me to understand that this is a pervasive opinion in our community, that breast cancer is a white woman's disease. No, it affects, it does not discriminate, not by age, not by race, ethnic background. It doesn't even discriminate if it's in your family history. 85% of women that will be diagnosed with breast cancer will have no family history of the disease. Mm -hmm. I certainly didn't. You know, and so for me, day 18 is all about putting the stark, the, 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 um, the hard to find information, the realities of what breast cancer is and how it affects our, our uh, women and men in our communities. Um, and, and that, like I said, it becomes a household name and that we, we begin to talk about it with an ease and a level of comfort that allows our future generations to see that, hey, this is nothing out of the norm for me to do. This is a, a conversation that every mother wants to have with her daughter in order to hopefully save her life. Whitney Dawn Bro, <laughs> the little girl I used to call Whitney Bo. Thank you so much for taking the time to share with us. Thank you for your transparency. Thank you for your sharing your story. Thank you for sharing the information. And it's been a long time since we've had a political argument. That was fun too. I love it. Thank you all for viewing. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back again next time.